This is Future of Work Pioneers with your host, Dr. Harpreet Singh at Harvard University. In this show, we speak with pioneers and thought leaders about workforce transformation, AI, and leadership in this exciting space. Hello, everyone. I'm Harpreet Singh, welcoming you to the Future of Work Pioneers podcast. Today, we are speaking with Ariana Huffington, the founder of the Huffington Post, the founder and CEO of Thrive Global, and the author of 15 books. She has been named to Time Magazine's list of the world's 100 most influential people and the Forbes most powerful women list. Originally from Greece, she moved to England when she was 16 and graduated from Cambridge University with an MA in economics. At 21, she became president of the famed debating society, the Cambridge Union. Her last two books, Thrive, the third metric to redefining success and creating a life of well-being, wisdom, and wonder, and the sleep revolution both became instant international bestsellers. Ariana, we are delighted to have you with us today. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm delighted to be with you. You recently wrote an illuminating piece upon turning 70, reflecting on the relationship between aging and wisdom. Your article ferried us across cultures and philosophical traditions, celebrating the wisdom that comes as we advance in age. As you look back uh, at your life, what are some of the defining moments for which you are most grateful? Well, it was actually a great opportunity during this uh, sheltering in place pandemic to go through all journals and um, and see how some of the same themes um, emerge through different stages in my life, but how much harder it is to go from awareness to action. So for me, one of the great kind of joys um, of turning 70 that I'm so grateful for is that a lot of the things that I've believed since my 20s, I can now put into practice. Uh, Like my belief, um, which was solidified um, when I was 17 years old and went to India to study comparative religion at Shantaniketan University outside Calcutta, you know, the university founded by Rabindranath Tagore. And uh, what... um, I kind of believed intuitively um, was um, solidified through the recognition that every major religion has the same kind of belief at its heart, which is that we all have in us this place of wisdom, strength, and peace. And um, we need to spend some time during our lives staying connected with that. You know, nobody is connected with it all the time, except perhaps some saints I haven't met. Uh, but the more we can connect with it, ironically, the more effective we are also going to be in anything we aspire to achieve in this life. So that belief um, that that was like... Th- running through my journals is something that I feel much more connected and able to put into practice now. And um, it really comes down to the recognition that life is shaped from the inside out. 
and uh, not from the outside in. And in terms of a big transitional moment in my life, I would say it was in 2007 when I collapsed from burnout, exhaustion, sleep deprivation, basically from having bought into the collective delusion that in order to succeed and be the great founder of the Huffington Post and the great mother to my children, and I had to be always on. And um, when that happened and I broke my cheekbone and uh, I basically was diagnosed with burnout, um, it opened my eyes to the epidemic of burnout uh, globally and um, led finally in 2016 to leaving the Huffington Post to found, in order to found thrive and help people, not just again, with awareness, but with action, with how can we change behavior. So how, how did you end up uh, at Shantiniketan? What, what, what grew you there? You know, ever since I can remember, I was very drawn to that other dimension in our lives. Um, and, uh, and, and there was also something that um, made me want to learn how different faiths expressed it. And so it's just kind of amazing to see whether you are reading the Vedas and the Bhagavad Gita or um, Zen or the Tao or the Stoics or the Christian mystics um, that you see that that same um, truth running through them. I, I really actually love the fact that you were steeped in technology and science and data and in ancient wisdom. For me, that's the winning combination for the future. So I'm a huge admirer of yours. And I really feel that's the solution. You know, um, ancient wisdom and spirituality are not at all contradictory to science and data. It's just that without them, we have a situation that, that is really rampant at the moment, which is really drowning in data and starved for wisdom. Yes, very, very true. This episode is brought to you by Experfy. Incubated in Harvard Innovation Lab, Experfy provides custom future of work solutions, such as private talent clouds and skill taxonomies. Experfy differentiates itself by using subject matter experts to pre-vet and pipeline candidates for AI and high-end technology skills. However, Experfy Talent Cloud Platform is skill agnostic and can be licensed to build custom talent clouds for any and all skills. In a different use case, enterprises interested in employee intermobility can license the Expify platform to create an internal gigs marketplace where interested employees can be algorithmically matched to projects, gamifying their learning experience. Visit www.expify.com for more information. You've had to think a lot about the ontology of the individual, the role of the individual in your work. So interestingly, when you look at South Asian traditions, self-abnegation and the suppression of ego, right? These are central goals. In sharp contrast, the Enlightenment project in the West put the individual 
at the center of the universe. So can these two perspectives be reconciled? How, how do you think about them? I think of them in terms of um, our higher self and our basic self. You know, we have basic self needs and we have our high self that's kind of um, the guide uh, to the ultimate reality. So for me, I don't think there's any contradiction because I think heartbreak life is paradoxical and so is truth. So when our limited minds try to uh, turn uh, truth into something linear that we can fit in a box, uh, we are denying uh, the very paradoxical nature of reality. If you go to, um, to the lives of great scientists and what they believed, uh, it's just amazing how much a spiritual dimension, even our dreams, permeates science. I love the book by Arthur Kessler on the act of creation that combines those two worlds. I mean, that's really what I think right now, as we are all in the middle of this uh, incredible time of transition, uh, we have an opportunity to kind of reimagine and build a new world where technology augments our humanity instead of technology being in opposition to our humanity. And that's really our goal at, at, at Thrive. I mean, we have a tech, a tech product uh, for behavior change. You know, we believe that you need that to be able to scale. But we bring into the platform a lot of ancient wisdom, a lot of storytelling, so that we can touch the heart and the mind. Otherwise, you don't really achieve behavior change. Mm -hmm. So you, you, you've stated uh, that we are drowning in data and starved for wisdom. So isn't it paradoxical that despite knowing intuitively that we will need to liberate ourselves uh, from uh, you know, the negative impacts of technology in order to succeed, we've allowed technology to dominate every aspect of our life, almost monopolize our lives. So how do you think about the future of work in a world that is dominated by data and algorithms. Uh, so how do we break this dependence from technology? I see it not so much as breaking the dependence, but as setting clear boundaries. And uh, also as adding a human layer over everything we are doing with technology. Let's take a specific example, Harpreet, of. Uh, preparing to return to offices whenever that happens. Many companies are working on that. Many companies are setting very clear protocols around uh, everything from elevator uh, protocols to uh, plexiglass to amazing um, software for contact tracing, etc., etc. Right, the best technology can offer. If we don't add a human layer to that, to help people deal with their own stress and anxiety that's growing, we cannot really achieve the results we want to achieve, which are basically productivity and, and great business metrics. So we need to wake up and realize that 
all the platitudes that we use, like putting people first, bringing your whole self to work, etc., we're not really living up to them fully. Because if we were, there would always be a human layer over any um, technological preparedness. What is your solution to this problem? How, how do we move in that direction of being more prepared? I think we need to give tools to every employee to mm-hmm. deal with their own stress and anxiety, to tap to their own center of peace, wisdom, and strength. Um, we are talking about psychological safety, but we also need to build psychological strength so that we can deal with the growing challenges and disruptions. And we are doing that through our platform Mm -hmm. that divides um, the work into four journeys. Um, The first is recharge. We need to recognize that sleep and um, 60 second breaks during the day to course correct from stress are essential both to our physical immunity and to our mental health. So that's the first journey. The second journey is fuel. It's about what do we eat? How much do we move? Very basic stuff that has a real impact on how we show up in our lives and at work. The third is about connection. You know, connecting with ourselves, going back to that connecting with others, and what thoughts are we holding in our head? Um, I have a quote on my desk by the French philosopher Montaigne that says, there were many terrible things in my life, but most of them never happened. Mm -hmm. So how can we help people uh, deal with um, um, the negative fantasies in our minds that are incredibly depleting that move us in a fight or flight mode um, and basically and most of the time have very little or nothing to do with reality we developed a whole program with stanford called thriving mind based on the latest brain science research and included in in our platform and the final one is focus which is essential as we are working from home, most of us now, and um, <clears throat> from the office at some point, we see that people are having a very hard time to focus. Stress, as in some new um, data from Yale shows us, is an incredible enemy to productivity. It literally weakens our prefrontal cortex. And uh, we have um, Google searches for how do I get my brain to focus up 300%. So bringing all that together is really preparing um, employees both to be able to return to offices, but also while they're working from home now or while they're working from stores or uh, factories or uh, what we're now um, deeming essential workers, but not treating like essential workers, um, is also um, important for all populations, knowledge workers and frontline workers. Mm-hmm. Well, that's fascinating that you've, you've, you've built a platform 
to address the, these things and to help people make a behavioral change, right? That's what you're trying to do here. That's the key. Mm -hmm. Behavior change is essential. Mm -hmm. Even if you look at combating the virus, we have not been able to get people to wear masks. That's a behavior. It's like if we had gotten people to behave differently, we would not be where we are with containing the virus. So cracking the code on behavior change is the biggest challenge we are facing. And I, I feel it's the coolest challenge. Maybe we can join forces and bring in AI because I really believe that AI has a big role to play. Mm -hmm. We bought a small AI company to help us improve our feedback loop recommendations because the more personalized our recommendations are regarding what micro steps to take, what content to feed you, what stories, what ancient wisdom to expose you to, the more effective we are going to be at helping you adopt healthier habits. Can you talk a bit more? I know you acquired Boundless Mind, uh, which uh, is enabling you to enter neuroscience and AI. Um, so can you talk a bit more about that aspect? Yes. Um, so at the heart of our behavior change platform, and the reason we call it a platform rather than an app, is because it's a whole human solution rather than a point solution, kind of a meditation app or a steps app or a sleep app. And also because it's built with very robust backend APIs. So if you have a favorite meditation app, you can plug it in. If you have a favorite um, sleep app, like I'm wearing my aura ring to track my sleep, <clears throat> you can feed in your data. But at the heart of everything are these micro steps, these small, tiny, daily, incremental steps that lead to healthy habits. And uh, we call them micro steps too small to fail. Mm -hmm. So we break them down to um, literally um, tiny interventions. Let me give you a couple of my favorites that have to do with how we start the day and how we end the day. You know, we have hundreds of them, but how we start our day is key. 72% of people start their day by going to their phone and checking texts and emails before they, they're even fully conscious, before their feet have touched the floor. <laughs> And uh, you don't know what's waiting for you there. It could be something that spikes the cortisol levels in your body before you're ready to deal with it. It's just so sad that we can't take 60 seconds, which is our micro step. Take 60 seconds before you go to your phone to take some deep breaths or to remember what you're grateful for or to set your intention for the day and then go to your phone. If you don't have a minute, you don't have a life. So that's the micro step for starting the day. The micro step for ending the day is about separating yourself from your phone. It's like declaring an end to the day at some point, whenever it is, 
And because human beings learn through ritual, you declare the end to the day by turning off your phone and charging it outside your bedroom. And if you can't do that every night, start with one night. And then you'll see the impact because so many people we work with tell us that if the phone is on the nightstand and they wake up in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom, whatever, they are going to be tempted to go to their phone if they can't go straight to sleep. And that will disrupt that time of recharging for our minds and for our bodies. Mm -hmm. You've noted that the pandemic has revealed a fundamental weakness in our society. At the same time, the pandemic provides an opportunity to change the world for the better. So is there a silver lining here? Or do you see our society changing as people find more time for themselves and for their families? Yes, I definitely um, see the pandemic as a portal and um, an opportunity, a catalyst for us to leave behind what hasn't been working and uh, to build a world um, that addresses fundamental crises that we left unaddressed. Um, one of them is the crisis of the skyrocketing increase in, in chronic diseases, like diabetes, like um, hypertension and heart disease, uh, obesity. And these are, to a large extent, about 75%, uh, behavioral diseases. So we can really affect them through behavior change. And the mental health crisis is also in many ways a behavioral disease. I mean, obviously there is at the extreme, there are conditions which are medical, you know, like bipolar and schizophrenia, but the majority can be affected as we build healthier behaviors. The other um, unaddressed crisis are the growing inequalities, mm-hmm. um, the growing health disparities, which we've seen disproportionately affecting communities of color um, during the COVID-19 um, pandemic. And uh, so addressing this crisis in the new next normal has to be a big priority. So you know how in alchemy, we have the crucible time, like we are now in the crucible, Mm -hmm. the time of trial. And of course it's up to us, but we have an opportunity to come out of the crucible strengthened and with fundamental changes in the way we live our lives and run societies. So, so let's talk about the alchemists who are controlling the crucible, the, the CHROs. Uh, <laughs> so, so, and you've, you've been interacting a lot with those folks. Uh, how, do you, how do you see their role evolving in, in this climate? I wrote a piece actually about their new dominance. And uh, I love that. They're now the most important executive next to the CEO. Because what has happened is that the health and wellness of employees is no longer just a nice to have. It's no longer just a benefit that you um, give to check the box. 
it's now imperative, it's now central to the health and success of the business. And I, we've been very lucky to work with amazing CHROs at Walmart, at uh, Verizon, at Accenture, Accenture CHRO, Ellen Shook, for example, um, has been practicing and speaking about what she's doing to put her own oxygen mask on first. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the things that CHROs have a responsibility to do, to kind of model new behavior, I mean, new good behaviors. They're not very new, but they're new in terms of how we work. And uh, therefore, give cultural permission to others across the organization. In her case, for example, at the beginning of the pandemic, she felt she couldn't really afford to go even for a walk because she was dealing with so much. Leaders tend to uh, put all the pressures on themselves. And then, you know, after we talked, she started walking and then she wrote and spoke about the impact it had to maintain that daily walk, a micro step, right? And um, she texted me the other day, I think 110 uninterrupted, you know, walks um, for 110 days. And that's just a small example mm -hmm. of how when leaders recognize that when they take some time to recharge, they're actually much more effective as leaders. They make better decisions. Um, and after all, leadership is about decision-making. It's about um, seeing around the corner at the icebergs before they hit the Titanic. You're really talking about leading by example so you could bring about cultural change. Uh, can, can you talk about um, uh, you know, how, how you look at leadership and cultural change more broadly? Yes, I, first of all, it's about recognizing the need for this human layer, whatever you are doing. Let's say you are upskilling employees. Let's take one area that there's so much conversation around. A lot of upskilling right now comes down to digital upskilling, coding, etc. Very important, but not enough. There should be no upskilling with, without human upskilling. How can we help people connect with their essential humanity where there is so much strength and power and, and yet we are not connected with it? And right now this is an imperative because without that resilience, we, are, we become incredibly fragile during times of disruption like this. And then it's also modeling that behavior. And um, we do that with all the programs we launch. Like we launched Thriving Mind uh, at Accenture to their 500,000 employees with, in, in uh, seven languages uh, with a video from Julie Sweet, their CEO basically where she said, I'm doing this program with my team. I invite you all to do it. It's very important because we are changing long-term false cultural assumptions uh, that go back to the first industrial revolution when we started revering machines. And the goal of machines 
And then the goal of software is to minimize downtime. But the human operating system is different. Downtime is a feature for the human operating system, not a bug. Very but true. that's a huge, huge cultural shift. I, I, we can't minimize it. It's like moving from believing that the earth is flat. And when we make that big cultural shift, a lot of the laws of navigation we are operating under in our businesses change. So in, in, in this context, um, obviously we're, we're talking top down. How do you do this bottom up? Because you, you have to do it both ways, right? Absolutely. Well, in the work we're doing with Walmart, working with their 2.2 million associates, most of whom work from the stores, um, we are focusing on that bottoms up element by capturing the stories of change and um, producing literally hardcover books with the stories that, that are in every Walmart break room, as well as including the stories in, the, in our behavior change app, as well as running um, challenges with financial rewards. So using like every lever to change behavior. And, but the, the most important lever is um, storytelling. Is people writing how they uh, change through one better choice a day, uh, their eating habits, Mm -hmm. and ended up losing, like, you have amazing stories, over 100 pounds and reversing diabetes. But it's not through some drastic diet that you're going to abandon after three weeks of doing it. It's through these micro steps. I mean, if you're drinking eight sugary drinks a day, can you cut it down to seven and a half. You know, if you tell yourself, I'm not going to drink any of it, you're not going to sustain it. <laughs> we have all the data about that. So taking all the stories of success and publicizing them is what encourages people because they're inspired by their peers. They feel this person is like me and they succeeded so I can do it. Are there specific habits that you see in preponderance where, whereas, you know, there's some that are less frequently seen uh, that people are trying to change? Yes, um, definitely habits around sleep, mm -hmm. food, movement, and um, the, the thoughts we hold in our heads. And the, the biggest countervailing force to the thoughts, the negative thoughts we hold in our heads is gratitude. So um, gratitude is one of our most popular micro steps. And mm -hmm. um, we, we apply this concept of habit stacking so that you don't even have to spend any extra time. Like while you are washing your hands, think of three things you are grateful for. While you're washing the dishes, think of three things you're grateful for. And as you know, um, that literally creates new neuropathways in the brain that counter 
the stress and anxiety. It's like, uh, it's the most amazing antidote. So what we love and are passionate about everything we're doing being Mm science-based. No warm and fuzzy wellness tips. Uh, Because that's how we can scale and that's how we can achieve results. But combining those science-based micro steps with storytelling and ancient wisdom. In one of your articles, uh, you describe how AI can be a moonshot for global health and well-being. And interestingly, you raise the issue that AI is often perceived as something that disrupts. Instead, you put forward this new characterization that AI is something that can be described as a bridge rather than a disruption. Can, can you elaborate uh, on this? Yes. Um, AI can really be instrumental in helping us personalize what we feed each person because we are all different. And um, if I feed you because you are working, let's say, on improving your sleep, and I feed you a story from Jeff Bezos who wrote on Thrive that he sleeps for eight hours a night because it improves his decision-making, and you care about your decision-making because you're a business leader or um, an academic who needs a lot of his energy and best decision-making, that might be the right piece of content to feed to you. If you are my daughter, that might not be at all the right piece of content. She couldn't care less how long Jeff Bezos sleeps. But if, let's say, she's working on um, setting boundaries to her relationship with her phone and social media, uh, AI will probably lead us to to feed her a story by Selena Gomez, whom she admires, about how she practices regular digital detox. This is just a small example Mm -hmm. of how sophisticated AI um, algorithms can can help us achieve the most personalized over time, of course, as we learn about you, um, both... uh, Micro steps, storytelling, ancient wisdom that you are more likely to resonate with so that we can affect your behavior. That's, that's fascinating. Uh, you know, you're taking uh, personalization as the, the, the core uh, uh, element here. So any, any parting words for our audience? So... The, the parting words have to do with my optimism. Despite um, the amazing time of trial we are in, um, of um, incredible pain for millions of people who've lost loved ones, who've lost jobs, uh, we have an opportunity to address long-standing cracks in our system. And... Um, we need to make sure we take that opportunity. And it all starts um, with our own behaviors and how connected we are 
with that place of wisdom in us from which we are going to make the best decisions. I call that place, you know, the eye of the hurricane. And we are in the middle of a metaphorical hurricane. But every hurricane has that place of calm. And if we can tap into it, we are going to be much more effective. And I'm very grateful to you, Harpreet, for the work you are doing. Thank you, Ariana. You're doing incredible work as well. I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Future of Work Pioneers podcast. Please rate us wherever you get your podcast and also tell your colleagues and friends about the show. Be sure to tune in next week for a new episode with yet another pioneer shaping the future of work.